0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. Last week you may remember that we had an unexpected visitor to Park Street Church. Pastor Damien was preaching and gave the story of his high school coach. And forgive me, Damien, for mentioning this, but I was so moved by that experience that his coach was planning to leave from Maine on a cruise trip. But because of Hurricane Lee had to be diverted to Boston and so he and his wife were walking around the common and saw the signpost that Pastor Damien was preaching. And so the wife texts the husband and says, is that Damien, that Damien from high school days? And I said, yeah, it's, I think it's the one. And so they showed up at the 11 o'clock service. I don't know when the last time you'd seen them had been for some time. And it was just an amazingly providential occurrence of. God at work through a storm. And how often storms redirect our plans. How often storms can undo us or change us. And when we're in a storm, the first thing we want is to run for shelter, right? To run for physical shelter. Well, there are many types of storms. Stormy relationships. How do you protect yourself when you feel emotionally threatened by somebody else? What do you do when your financial investments and your securities are under threat? Or What do you do when you don't feel safe or threatened sexually? How do you navigate those storms that arise unexpectedly? Do you become hijacked by fear, paralysis, become passive? or hijack the other way of anger and cynicism and disdain. How do you path this course? How do you navigate through storms? Well, one path that people take is very rational, very objective, measured to look for order, control, predictability. And you might call that the Proverbs path. Others. Go another direction, seeing the world as anarchic, chaotic, irrational, unpredictable. You might call that the Ecclesiastes path. Well the Bible doesn't think like you think, and the Bible doesn't think like I think. The Bible cannot be flattened into some neat binary between order and chaos, rationality and irrationality. The wise path is not in either extreme, but as one pastor says, it's in both extremes. In fact, the wise path that we find when revealed is more complex, is more intriguing, and perhaps a way that is more hopeful as a way of reality in life. Well, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, provide this fundamental fear, not of storms, but of God, the fear of God. And do not try to minimize the tension between chaos and order, between predictability and irrationality in the storms of life. They try not to minimize either of the two, living within that tension of a wise path through it. And because the Messiah himself revealed to us that everything in the Psalms must be, rev- must be fulfilled in Luke 24, 44. Our task this morning is to explore what that pathway is. Well, we come to the Psalms, and this Psalm is unlike virtually all the other Psalms in the Psalter. Why? Because it gives us a historical context. Out of the 14 superscriptions in the Psalms, five come from 1 and 2 Samuel. But if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, you know, reading the national hero, King David himself, he's a complex character. He doesn't give much away. His public speech is very measured. There's very little interior dialogue. But come to the Psalms. Open up the pages of the Psalter, and the, the door gets blown open, the lid gets taken off. You see within the soul, within the heart of what was happening in this historical experience. But it's not a linear algorithm. It's not an in-out kind of mathematical way of looking at this. It's chaotic. It's zigzaggy, jarring, jolting, consistent, inconsistent, backtracking, going forward as he navigates in the soul, in the depth of his being, what it's like through the storms that threaten destruction. And so this morning, We're going to walk through this psalm in this jarring emotional turmoil of Psalm 57, and perhaps we can see a little bit more of David's greatest son, and perhaps we can see a little bit of what the storms of life bring and how we may, if we face storms in our own lives, what it means to go the wise path. Well, we're not going to stop at every marker on this path. It's, some will spend a little bit more time than others, but it's not that direct or linear. It's somewhat chaotic. Well, the first marker, if we were walking down the path, we'd see on, on the side of the, of the path is found in verse 1 and 2. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, in the storms of destruction till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. First marker is cry. Cry. I'm not sure how many people here enjoyed Old Church Camp this year. Maybe a show of hands folks. Oh, great. And you may remember one of the things at the Old Church Camp was reading the story of David and Goliath. And there was some Hollywood-level acting by Sam Beveridge and Christina Johnson, showing us the story. Well, it was a high point. Then it was. A, it's also a high point in the narrative. But quickly, the storms arise for Saul. Saul's initial love for David, in 1 Samuel 16:21, turns into jealous hatred, 1 Samuel 18:11 then to surveillance in 1 Samuel 19:11 then to stealing his wife on his honeymoon in 1 Samuel 18 then to death threats in 1 Samuel 20:34 can you imagine have you ever put yourself in David's shoes what would that feel like just for a moment Is it any wonder David, understandably, was on the run? On the run from King Saul, on the run from the Philistines. And there he finds himself in no man's land, in the cave of Adullam. So David cries out. He cries out for mercy, understandably so, from his enemies. But I wonder, I just wonder, if he's crying out for something else. Because he sinned. He's a broken man. He lied to the high priest, as we read in 1 Samuel 21, he He betrayed his faith by looking to spears and swords like Goliath in 1 Samuel 21, 9, which he'd earlier confessed publicly in 1 Samuel 17, 47, that all this assembly know that the Lord God saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand." And David had morphed into his enemy, into his nemesis, mimicking the madness of King Saul to the king of Gath in 1 Samuel 21, 13. Yes, this seems to be a low point in David's life, compromising his character, smearing his integrity. And many people may have thought running to a cave is a way of escape, and it was, but also a trap. His enemies could hunt him down, could corner him. Yes, it was protection for David, but David looked beyond the cave. He looked beyond his circumstances to his great protector. He wasn't so much running from the enemy, he was running into the arms of God. And he says in verse 1 In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. To take refuge refuge in the wings of the almighty is this beautiful biblical image of god's protection and his care he says i will my soul takes refuge the present the moment he speaks the word it's like a trigger yes at that very moment he's taking refuge but there's more the grammar helps us here when it says he will take refuge in any and ongoing present and future situation, he will continue to take refuge in the arms of God. But it also looks back to the very roots and the foundations of his faith. In Psalm 17, 8, he says, "'Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings.'" The wings of God, a rich image throughout all of Scripture, Scripture begins in Genesis 1:2 with the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And the Bible closes with wings in Revelation 12:14. but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent in the wilderness to the place where she might be nourished for the time. And rustle through the pages of the Bible and you'll find the wings of the Almighty. In Exodus 25-18, the wings of the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Or in Exodus 19, step 4, for protection from Egypt, you yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Or through redemption of a Moabite foreigner in Ruth 2, 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you came for refuge. And then the Messiah himself announces crying out for protection and redemption, for favor and the love of God. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing, Matthew 23, 37. Well, on our pathway, we move on to verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put, up, put to shame those who tramples, tramples on me. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, says, God sends orders from on high and saves me. He humiliates those who kick me around. God declares his given love, and he makes good his word. The second marker is trust. The Bible paints a very realistic view of the fragility of life, frequently threatened, unexpectedly, storms within, storms without, hostile enemies from our own weaknesses. It's the view the scriptures have of the life that we live on earth. This past March, Pastor Damien and I had the privilege to serve with Iranian Christians in Greece, and there we heard the stories of refugees from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Kurdistan, who'd survived the Taliban, who'd survived police shooting, who'd seen their children attacked, physical abuse, sexual abuse, bullying from people smugglers, and so much more. And yet, And yet, so many had come to shelter under the wings of the Almighty. They'd come to trust in the steadfast love and faithfulness of this God we know. And this pairing of steadfast love and faithfulness, a couplet that comes again in verse 10 and is repeated throughout the Psalms in Psalm 25, 10, 40, 10, 61, 7, 85, 10, 89, 14, to go on and on the love and the faithfulness of God, His protection, His restoration of His people. And it's the primary way that God relates to His people, that they must discover His loyalty, His love, over and over again, crisis upon crisis upon crisis. Well, the second marker is trust. We come to the third marker, verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down in fiery, amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. It's an abrupt emotional nose drive. You've heard of ambiguous loss. Well, this I'm calling ambiguous lament. It can either be translated, I must lie down, or an assurance with a confidence, I will lie down. There's this sort of tension between what is going on in his soul, his emotions. His enemies are terrifying. Lions and fiery beasts. I don't know what experience you've had with lions. My experience of lions has been in a zoo. <laughs> Though I did see lions on a safari in Africa once. Well, you can go to the internet and become an expert on lions pretty easily. And my little trip, discover, I discovered that a lion's bite can be up to 1,000 pounds a square inch. That's not a little nip. A little munch. A nip from a human can be 150 pounds a square inch, and if you have that cuddly pit bull, 235 pounds a square inch. Well, David does not identify his enemies, but he characterizes them. They're ruthless, they're vicious, and their teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. They've weaponized language they've weaponized their words throughout the bible we read of lies and slander proverbs 12:18 reckless words pierce like a sword but the word of the wise brings healing well that's the third marker ambiguous laments we come to our fourth marker in verse 5 be exalted o god above the heavens let your glory be over all the earth It's an erratic catapulting, zooming at 90 degrees upwards in the midst of the cave, in the midst of the pressure. David shouts out, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He wants God to manifest his greatness. He's the creator, the judge, the deliverer, the redeemer. He's not just in heaven. He's in the highest heaven. In Job 22:12 12, and Psalm 113, verse 4, He rules the universe. All history is under His purview. He alone gives stability to the universe and its sustenance. In Psalm 78, verse 68. It's the fact that God is sovereign on the throne. There's no storm in heaven, there's no chaos in heaven. He is ruling the universe. And that's one reason why David is passionate for the nations, for the earth. It's the basis for his mission. God is the judge of the whole earth in Genesis 18 25. He's the divine warrior in Exodus 15 3. He's the Lord of the whole earth in Psalm 1797, verse 5. He's the king of the whole earth in Psalm 47 2, whose glory fills the earth. He himself is on mission that all may acknowledge and bow the knee and come under the embrace under the sheltering wings, the protection and the love, the wings of God. Well, then, after the fourth marker, we come to the fifth marker in verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they themselves have fallen into it. It's like a tailspin, like a fighter pilot suddenly falling to earth. It's such a letdown after this amazing, exalting God in verse 5. He's bowed down. His spirit is oppressed. The very core of his being is under oppression. In Psalm 69, verse 10, Isaiah 58, verse 5, we see this bowing down. But then you notice in the right-hand column, the silah, that liturgical or musical notation indicating an accentuation that David's, David's enemies are done. They're finished. It's the arrogant who are warned in the Psalms about digging pits in Psalm 119, verse 85. They are done by their own conniving, by their own strategies. They are undone. One of the most powerful examples of that from Scripture we find in Esther chapter 7, verses 7 to 10. If you're familiar or not familiar with the story, it's a fascinating portrait of a young lady in the royal court. And the Jews are hated by one particular man, Haman. And he prepares the gallows for his nemesis, for this Jewish man, Mordecai. And then, in that felicitous phrase, the tables are turned, and Haman is hung on the very gallows he sought to hang his enemies. Perhaps a more recent example would help us appreciate God is still in the business of turning the tables. In Afghanistan, in Kabul, a number of years ago, a church was built. When the church was built, there was a German businessman, a Christian, who was in Afghanistan doing his work, and he was talking to a government official about this church that had gone up. There was a church in Washington, D.C., and through Eisenhower I said, well, there should be a church. In there was a mosque in Washington, D.C., and thought in parallel, there should be a church in Kabul. So they built a church in Kabul in Afghanistan, and the, the Christian businessman said to this official who had warned him, look, we're going to bulldoze your church. And he said, if you touch God's church, God will touch you. And when they began to bulldoze the church, either that very night or the next day, the, the leader of the country was assassinated and the Russian troops came in. And that was the story a story in this tragic has, history of Afghanistan. Well, then we come to our sixth marker in verse 7 to the end. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre, and I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. His trust has turned to song. His whole heart is animated. His whole attention is engrossed with God his faith and his affections, so deeply rooted and so impacted by the humbling and the experiences that he's had in the cave are welling up now, he cannot contain himself, cannot stop himself from praising and thanking this God. He knows who his glory is. Awake your glory, reminiscent of Psalm 2 verse 3, but your Lord are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory and the lifter of my head. That was the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria, for God, for glory to God alone. Why? Because all salvation, eternal salvation is due to him. His will, his actions, his plan in eternity lived out throughout history of creation, the fall, promise, the Messiah, the mission, the judgment, the new creation. It's all his. All glory be to God alone. No wonder, no wonder the musicians down the centuries have been inspired by the glory of God. Of Johann Bach and George Frederick Handel putting SDG in their works. Or or the writers inspired the poets like John Milton or or painters and sculptors like Michelangelo captivated by the glory of God that inspires them beyond the storms and problems of life. And throughout the ages, down to the present time, the glory of God is the motive, touching a man, touching God's people. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. David has been deeply, deeply touched by the mercy of God and by the glory of God. And so now he wants the entire world to know this one true God. His heart is soaring above those cave walls in that no man's land to the highest of heaven. And his mission is that God would be glorified among all the peoples. As, as one man, Pastor John Piper, said, mission exists because worship does not. Because there is no worship or little worship among so many peoples around the world. Yes, there are those in Boston who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, but they have access They have access and resources to know Jesus Christ. But there are many in countries like Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Turkmenistan or others languishing in huge cities and parts of South Asia who don't know Jesus Christ and don't have access to Jesus Christ. And yet David's motive for mission is the glory of God. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory, your glory be above the earth. Well, we've looked at several markers on this path, this chaotic and tumultuous path, and I'd like to close it down with some reflections maybe for us today around the thoughts of storms and caves and wings. Storms can feel very threatening, can be so destructive, so difficult. And yet storms may also provide an opportunity for hope. I think it's something that William Shakespeare understood when he wrote his comedy, The Tempest. In that story, there's a father and a daughter who are stranded on an island in the middle of nowhere. And the father has his enemies back home and somehow in an amazing Shakespearean fantasy, He's whisked away to his, his enemies come into his very presence. And there the father and the daughter, they see the enemies who've come before him. The enemies are vulnerable. They're in his grip. And the father has a choice to make. Will he seek vengeance, retribution, punishment? Or will he go to reconcile and to forgive? You see, the tempest has changed the father, and everything has changed. And Shakespeare has so much insight to see through the tempest, there is a path that can bring life. There is a path that can bring renewal and rebirth out of the chaos. How about you? How about you? How about me? What about caves? Well, David's in the cave. He'd been anointed king and he was no longer, he, he didn't have his throne, he didn't have his crown, he didn't have his palace. He was living in a cave, a king in a cave. Well, the cave was an analogy for the church. David had been changed. He'd been humbled and broken, and yet he took refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Well, the church was like a cave. A group of people huddled together who ordinarily wouldn't maybe even know each other in the street. From very different backgrounds. For David, it was everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was embittered in soul in 1 Samuel 22:1, 1. A sort of triple whammy, if you like. There were those who were crushed and desperate, clustering around David. Why? Why cluster around David? He couldn't pay their debts. He couldn't adjudicate their legal disputes. He couldn't provide for their families. Why? Why? I was helped by a sermon from Gordon Hugenberger on this very topic. The point was that David could not solve their problems. Just like the church cannot solve your problems. David pointed to a deeper issue than the presenting problems. He pointed to their deeper need for the Most High, that the most high is their ever-present help in trouble. He is the wings in the shelter in the storm. And we see in the New Testament where David's greatest son gathers around him all kinds of people on both ends of the political spectrum, zealots and tax collectors. On both ends of the religious and moral spectrum, prostitutes and Nicodemus. On both ends of the physical health spectrum, the Olympic fit and lepers. He gathers around him all kinds of people. And we may say today that Jesus gathers continually people of all different backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, married people, singles, divorcees, returning citizens, unhoused, addicts, straight-laced, unstraight-laced, free-spirited, professors, non-professors, undereducated, over-educated, coming around the sheltering arms and the wings of great David's greatest son. Recently, I watched a video called The Jesus Revolution. It was a video about what happened in California in the 1960s and 70s. A lot of teenagers and people in their 20s, college students, kind of fed up with some of these social and cultural solutions to some of the crises and difficulties that people were being faced with. And they kind of were wondering, where do we go? What do we do? And they began to turn to Jesus and there's this remarkable movement that happened a number of years ago, and the struggle that the organized, the institutional churches had in welcoming in, sheltering under the arms of these young people who didn't look like them, didn't dress like them, maybe didn't like the same kind of foods, but they were hunkering down, they were sheltering under the wings. Well, that Jesus revolution is continuing, and in the cave is where we find shelter. But just showing up, just showing up on a Sunday, is necessary to shelter under the wings, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to deal with the false self and the true self, to deal with that deeper discipleship that needs to go on. As one pastor said, you can't change deeply unless you're in an authentic community, an authentic community where the gospel changes everything, where the gospel changes everything. Your view of money, money as a status symbol, money as a means of selfishness, perhaps, to money as a a resource to give away, money as a resource to bless others, where your view of sex is transformed from one of self-fulfillment into something that is life-giving and covenantal, that brings life for others, where your view of power is transformed by the gospel from domination and control, from the tactics and the strategies of the world as an end in itself to become a resource for justice a resource for serving others and for the world you can't change deeply unless you're in authentic community through the storms that threatens destruction huddling under the shadow shadow of his wings well the church is a cave but this church is a cave under the wings and david could come to praise god under the wings to be concerned for the peoples of the world, because he'd been touched by the mercy of God. He'd been touched by the glory of God. We saw that as the Moabites began to come to know Christ in Ruth 2.12, where Ruth sheltered under the wings, also as a reference possibly to Hittites in 1 Samuel 26.6, even Hittites coming to come to have shelter under the wings. It's this journey under the wings of the people of God that propelled David to have a concern for the nation and propels God's people in every age to have concern for the world. that The world would know their maker, their redeemer, their judge of all the earth. But the church requires that undoneness. The church requires that internal change to be a witness to Christ in the world. Yes, she can try to blend in. She can assimilate to the, to the values of the world, of the ways of the world, of its strategies, and embrace the, the, the cultures of the world, kind of like Eusebius, Eusebius in the fourth century, who tried to blend in to the wave of the world, of the cultural and the social, the way that politics was done in the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Well, the church can opt out above it all, purer than pure, isolating herself, Seeking and hating the values and the, the, what's going on in the world today. Kind of like the Donatists in North Africa in the fourth century. Yes, the church can do that. But neither of which follows Jesus. Neither of which follows Christ who said, they are not in the world, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You, as you sent me into the world in his prayer in John 17, so if I, I've sent them into the world. Because the church is in the world, but not of the world. The church is already seeing the kingdom of God, but it's not yet consummated. The church is sent out into the world as exiles and aliens. The church is sent out under the wings of God, some of whom will even give up their lives as martyrs for the great David's greatest son. They're sent out not as perfect people, but as broken sinners who have fellowship one with another as they attest to the wings under whose power and shelter all peoples, all nations may take refuge. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us, Lord, where we have betrayed our faith, where our characters Lord, have been impugned, where we have not been faithful or loyal to you. O oh, Lord, do your work in our midst. Do your work in me. Lord, humble us, that your Holy Spirit may reveal the beauty of Christ, of his love, his faithfulness, his kindness, and that the world may see the wings are for them, the wings are for the world, that you have designed your protection in the storms of life. That we may bring glory to you in the highest of heavens because it's in your name we ask it amen